his heart fully being connected to his words. In a sense, he was moved. He was grieved. Not, very, not overtly dramatically, but yet there was a sense of anguish in Christ. And fast forward you know, to our time. I started talking about last Sunday the tremendous need that we have today, 2016, for what Jesus saw thousands of years ago as he was with his friends. And I made the connection that, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but the church is pretty large these days, right? God has so advanced and grown the church, hasn't he? Expanded the church. We're great in number. And so I, I kind of talked about my own personal thoughts about Matthew chapter 9, 32. And I was wondering what Jesus was actually um, processing when he made this observation. What was going through his head? You know, was it a lack of laborers, like the number just wasn't there to kind of accommodate the deficit of the harvest? And we're not talking about corn and crops. We're talking about lost souls, just in case you were confused on that. Um, You know, was Jesus seeing the lack of like, you know, like there's this great harvest field of lost souls, but yet this little numbers of laborers? I would assume to think as it wasn't even the start of the early church at that point. Acts had not yet happened. But fast forward today, I don't think we have a shortage of laborers in the church today. I was just thinking about some of the gatherings that the church has um, done over the course of a couple months with the Call Azusa, where 91,000 people, I think, gathered uh, out there in L.A. And then you had together 2016, where over, they're saying, uh, right about three fifty to 400,000 people showed up. I mean, we're, we're you know, God's expanded the church, hasn't he, in this day? And so I started just trying to think about the words of Christ and saying, Lord, where, how do we fit into this, uh, this kind of observation that you made? Because I see the same thing in the church. I see the great harvest field and the lack of laborers. But I would say that more so the lack of laborers is more attached to willingness than it is actual uh, numbers, if you would. A willingness to go. And so that's kind of some of the things that we uh, brought into frame and talked about last Sunday. Uh, we talked about, you know, Jesus' comforting words in chapter 10 of how he's going to send us into the world like sheep. Well, thank you very much, Jesus. You know, I don't know about you, but the last animal on the face of the planet I want to be identified as is a sheep. I mean, talk about helpless, harmless, a bit pathetic, defenseless. I know, all you sheep lovers. Oh, oh come on. You're wearing clothes that most likely... No, no. Ah! But, but, you know, he doesn't necessarily give us like this victorious, you're going to go. Hey, I would be happy to be... Uh, 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 sent in the world like a cat. Have you ever seen those videos of those animals? Those things are vicious, bro. Those things are mean. Back them in the corner, wow, look out. My wife actually thinks that cats have demonic spirits in them. Um, and if there was scripture to back that up, man, we would be preaching. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's just an observation. Some of you cat lovers are like, ah! no, we don't believe that cats are possessed, all right? Can we cut that from the tape? But Jesus says, listen, I'm going to send you into this world as sheep. And you know what? To top it off, not only will you be harmless, a little bit defenseless and empathetic, but 
but I'm going to surround you by, uh, by wolves. How about that, guys? I'm going to surround you by these vicious animals that are going to prey on your life. And, of course, Jesus makes the connection of these wolves being men who would think nothing but to throw us under the bus, if you, so to speak. And so, Jesus gives us this wonderful picture of what we get to look for. You know, all of chapter 10 is kind of a Debbie Downer. It's kind of a letdown, if you would. And, but Jesus so brilliantly snaps our logic right into play. How does he do that? He says this. Listen, guys. You can fear man if you want to, but guess what? They can only take your life. I don't know about you, but that's enough for me to check out. Like, okay, I'm good. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, they can take my life. I'll leave that right there. I'm good. I'm good. You know? But, but, but really, if you think about uh, the temporal versus the eternal, if you're a believer today, it makes total sense for Jesus to say words like he did. Where he says, listen, you can fear man, and at best, they can kill you. (laughs) I don't know, we live in a pretty free society. I mean, we're here today lifting our hands, being loud with our music, exalting Christ. I mean, there's, there's no immediate threats that we have in being bold in our faith. But yet we are, for some reason. But Jesus says this, he says, don't fear man, they can take your life, but fear God, right? And he goes on and says, listen, you want to fear God because he can take your life? and your spirit, your soul, and damn it in hell. I'm sorry, didn't mean to swear. Jesus said that. But it gives us, it snaps our logic right, whoo, eternity. I mentioned that the late uh, Leonard, Leonard, excuse me, Ravenhill said, we should live in a manner as if we have eternity stamped on our eyelids. Meaning that the temporal as Christians should be removed from our logic and the the eternal should be ever before us. Ever before us that we should live in the manner that this is not home. And at best, people could scoff at you, tear you down, maybe even take your life. But God can destroy both your life and your spirit. More comforting words from Jesus. But... This is where I want to pick up, if you would turn, if you're already there, or, but if you haven't yet, turn to chapter 10 of the Gospel of Matthew. Just two verses I want to read. Just some more comforting words from Christ here. I want to, what we have to look forward to as we share our faith. Why do I say that? Because, you know, particularly in the charismatic arena, our genre, there's this over kind of emphasis is like, victorious, you know, strength, you know, this kind of like warrior type thing that we feel as though uh, we have. But yet Jesus in the New Testament, he identifies us as being weak and in total need of him. You know, I don't know how, I don't know just how much more you could be reduced to weakness by being identified by Jesus as a sheep. (laughs) Okay, Matthew chapter 10, 17 and 18. He says this, but beware, for you will be handed over to the courts and will be flogged with whips in the synagogues. Doesn't necessarily sound like America. You will stand trial before governors and kings because what? You are my followers. But listen to this. He goes on after this. after, um, After he says, because you are my followers, he says, but... This will be your opportunity 
to tell the rulers and others, unbelievers, about me. Now, why, why would I bring this scripture into focus? Well, it's because of this. I feel as though in the church, and this is not hilltop, although there is plenty room to grow, but this is the church at large. At large. I feel as though sometimes we're waiting for the perfect situation, the right circumstances to develop, before we take steps to share our faith. In Jesus, all through chapter 10, you can read it for yourself. The context or the uh, picture that we get in being bold witnesses for Christ is at best bleak. It is not in any way hopeful, meaning that there is no promise of victory here. There is only trouble, conflict. But Jesus says within the midst of this trouble, within the midst of this being persecuted, it will be the greatest opportunity for the gospel to be proclaimed. So the idea of waiting for the perfect circumstances and the right situation goes right against the grain of Jesus' words here in chapter 10. And may I dare say, the whole lot and lay of the Old and New Testament. It won't exactly be easy. Now, we live in America. There are others who will be drugged before kings and governors and be persecuted even. I mean, we hear about it all over the news today, but we live in America. We are blessed with the opportunity to not be persecuted, but yet still, some of us, if you're like me, are timid and fearful. And we lack the boldness to boldly proclaim the greatest news that has ever come to planet Earth. Turn with me to 2 Timothy. Because I'm not here to beat you up. I want us to identify with another person in the Bible who, yes, struggled with timidity and fear. But yet Paul encouraged him, exhorted him to be bold, to be fearless, and to preach the gospel. Now let me give you some of the settings here. Here's Paul. Second letter to Timothy, he's writing in prison. If I was in prison today, what would you think of me? Yeah, I wonder how he got there. Great. <laughs> You're like, I don't know if it was exactly godly. <laughs> what, would you, what would your thoughts be of me? Here I am, a pastor of a growing church, a young church. I'm supposed to be living above reproach, and all of a sudden I'm thrown in the slammer. And I'm writing from prison. Bethany. (laughs) I don't think we have an issue with Bethany being bold, okay? (laughs) Be bold. (laughs) But what would be your thoughts? Here's the man who walks in great stature in the church. I mean, this bro, Paul, gave us 33 books of the New Testament. He's a big deal, and he's behind bars. The interesting thing about Timothy is that He has been raised primarily by his grandmother and his mother. 
There is no account, there is no recognition of his father being anywhere. It wouldn't be a far stretch to think Timothy as being fatherless. Maybe he wasn't dead, maybe he was there, but he certainly wasn't mentioned. And he certainly didn't shape Timothy's faith. And and to go a little further, doesn't Paul identify himself as being Timothy's father? My dear child is his words to Timothy. Kind of almost get the feeling that Paul is taking that place in Timothy's life as being a father. So here Timothy is, picture a mega church, probably beyond what we see today in our culture in America as being a mega church. Timothy was, most theologians disagree that he was a pastor, but he was definitely an overseer of many churches. And he was the overseer of large churches. We're talking thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. And here he is, Paul encouraging, don't be timid, don't be fearful. Why would Paul say that? Because at that moment or this moment in Timothy's life, he had a lot of old people who were saying, who are you to lead us? I mean, what are you, like 20 at best? Have you even hit puberty? Who are you to tell me? Who are you to be and to have such great responsibility and authority? And Paul is reminding Timothy, he's like, listen, don't let anyone despise your youth, Timothy. I've seen your faith. Listen, Timothy, you know, the interesting thing is Paul, almost in the first eight verses of 2 Timothy, chapter 1, you feel Paul's kind of encouragement kind of laid or laced with the truth of what Timothy probably faces on a regular basis, fear and timidity. I don't know, it's not easy being a pastor, friend. It's not easy. I mean, the moment you open your mouth and speak, you just open yourself to everybody's opinion, everybody's disagreement, everybody's this and that. It's not easy. So imagine Timothy here, young person, young. We're talking young folks. And he is given great responsibility to oversee large churches with older people in it. And he is battling because they are hammering him, saying, who are you, Timothy, to lead us? Paul says, listen, Timothy. Uh, uh, Psychologically, they believe that some of Timothy's fear and timidity came from primarily are because of the upbringing or the absence of his father and the upbringing of his mother and his grandmother. Now, we could all get into that. I was a person who was raised uh, by mother, my mother. Uh, my father, for the most part, was absent. He was not around. And even when he was, it was like he wasn't there. All through my life, I've been more developed, like Timothy, so I could relate by women more than I have men. And if I could tell you the effects of that and how it has affected me psychologically because I can connect with Timothy. I told, I think all of you guys a couple Sundays ago, that I, I, I battle great fear and timidity. I mean, even to speak here right now, you may think, well, that guy, you know, you have thought, what is this guy talking about? This guy seems dumb, like he can't even put his words together. I want to tell you right now, openly, transparently, that I struggle in these areas, and I believe it's because I was not brought up or had a father figure to glean from. 
It's not discrediting the women that have poured into my life. I thank God for uh, the godly women that godly, God placed in my life. But we kind of see, if you would, the backdrop or the behind the scenes of what Timothy must have been going, both psycholo- uh, psychologically in his mind, the wrestle with fear and timidity because maybe people don't agree or he's being hammered by older people saying, who are you to lead me? And listen, I'm not trying to beat up old people. Listen, we need old people. Some of you young people, you need to be beat up. You need an, an older person coming alongside and say, honey, you look like a fool. Listen, I, I, don't get me wrong. I'm just a pastor that happened to plant a church and the demographic of co- the mecca of all uh, college, you know, college experience or college life. And so it's kind of like what happens. But I am pro uh, 30s, late 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. I am pro through and through. We need them. I talk to some of you young people. I'm like, oh, God, help them. <laughs> My prayer, you may think I'm praying to like raise you up as a young revivalist. I'm like, Lord, give them somebody old. <sighs> Please, God. It's funny now, but it is the truth. It is the absolute truth. So we kind of get and identify. Can't you identify even right now, regardless of what kind of position you have today. Can't you identify with Timothy right now? I don't care if you stand behind a pulpit. (laughs) I don't care if you're in the workforce. I don't care if you're going to school. Can't you identify? Am I alone in saying that there is a bit of fear, there is a bit of timidity when it comes to sharing our faith? So, but to bring it more into focus, or to kind of bring out of the first eight verses of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, we need to focus on the main point. And the main point that Paul is communicating within these paragraphs is that Timothy would keep on feeding the flame of God's gift inside of him. Isn't that what he says in verse 8? Let's read it. Let's start in verse 5. I remember your genuine faith. This is first, 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. I remember your genuine faith, for you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I know that that same faith continues strong in you. I wonder if Timothy knows that. This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift of God. I'm sorry, spiritual gift of God, spiritual gift God gave you, excuse me, when I laid my hands on you, for God has not what? Given us a spirit of fear and timidity, Timothy, my loved son, my cherished son, but he has given us power, love, and self-discipline. And then he goes on to say this, so never, you understand, now Paul has taken probably at this time, the position, the role of father in Timothy's life. Timothy has high regards for Paul. And what does Paul say? He says, Timothy, never be ashamed to tell others about the Lord. And don't be ashamed of me. I'm sure I would almost bet money that some of the scoffing that was coming from the churches that Timothy was overseeing came from what was currently going on with Paul being in prison. 
Now, you may think, you know, maybe my wife stands up here. I'm in prison. She's like, listen, he didn't go to jail for this. What they're saying is wrong. He went to jail for just boldly proclaiming Christ. But you would have some kind of, you know, really? Like, who goes to jail in America for proclaiming Christ? I mean, there would be some sense of, like, I don't know. I mean, he was pretty sketchy. Did you hear him speak? (laughs) But you have to understand, Timothy is probably even himself questioning Paul because he's in prison. But Paul says, don't be ashamed of me even though I'm in prison. But also Paul is saying to Timothy, listen, you think what your churches are doing to you are bad right now? You wait. It's going to get hot. It's going to get heavy, Timothy. You're going to be persecuted. And you may, Timothy, end up like me behind bars. Why? Because you just simply shared your faith. But don't be ashamed. So Timothy is kind of encouraged to continue in his genuine faith and to speak openly of Christ and to suffer for the sake of the gospel as Paul was suffering at the time of writing this letter to him. But again, the emphasis, the thing to focus in on is how Paul tells Timothy to combat or to fight fear and timidity. And what is it? Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God inside of you. And we know uh, that this kind of fanning into flame is Paul telling Timothy, listen, this is not a one-time thing, Timothy. You just aren't going to get fixed one time and your heart ain't just going to blaze one time as you kind of fan into flame the Spirit of God inside of you. Timothy, you have to continue in fanning those flames. Because why, Timothy? You're going to struggle continually with fear and timidity. Timothy, you have been given great responsibility. The only way, Timothy, you're going to win this battle in your inner man and your corporate life is to keep continually fanning the flame of God's gift inside of you. You know, I get so aggravated in a sense with Christians that come to me and start talking about burnout. I I don't even think that that's biblical. (laughs) Like, I'm sorry. If you believe in being burnt out as a Christian, fine. If you have scripture verses and doctrine around that, you know, idea, great. I don't buy it. I'm sorry. You understand that these people that we look up to, that we read, that we study, even Christ Himself, went all the way into being fully obedient even unto the place of death. I mean, they struggled. I mean, here we are. All we have to do for some of us is just show up. (laughs) I, I believe that all burnout is the result of what Paul is talking about here. It's when we stop fanning that flame. How do we do that? We know how to do that. You get in God's Word. You get in that prayer room or your prayer closet. You get, you know, in worship. You start just, 
feeding that spirit inside of you. Why? Because there are so many things in our culture that wants to snuff that out in you. And you know, for the most part, I think it's winning in the church. And it's a sad state of affairs. We want such grandiose things. You know, we want such grandiose movement. But yet, we can barely go a month without taking time off from church or being around community or sharing our faith with others or leading or discipling. We can't. It's too much. I'm burnt out. Really? All I can say is good luck. Not for the individual, but good luck for God's cause and mission in the earth. Because it takes laborers, much like Jesus saw in His day. You know what? And what was Jesus' prescription when he, he saw the great need for laborers? He said, pray. <laughs> any good shepherd knows what to do. Any good Christian, not, that's wrong. Any Christian should know what to do when times get tough. You get your butt in prayer. Here's God saying, oh, the harvest is great, guys. The labors are few, but let's go to God in prayer. Prayer is, is a vehicle that God uses to fan into flame. Romans chapter 12, Paul says this. I love this translation. I believe it's the New uh, Living Translation. It says, excuse me, it says, Don't, do not be slothful in zeal. Boil in spirit. <laughs> Let me just say it again. Do not be slothful. Make no provision. Don't be found. Other translations, Paul says, don't be found lacking zeal. You know what I'm looking for as a pastor today? For people who have zeal. (laughs) Just give me two or three. I'm looking for people full of zeal that no matter what they face, and listen, I know we are facing, some of us are facing, and I'm not trying to... um, marginalize or reduce what you are going through personally. We are all suffering in this life. There's many things. I was talking to a young lady last night, praying with her, and she just a year ago lost her brother. It broke my heart. And here I am in the prayer room praying about God fill us with zeal, and she's connecting that she's lost a sense of her zeal, and I'm trying to be sympathetic because I could never imagine Losing a loved one or anyone that was close to my life. But the truth remains, guys. Paul equips Timothy both to boldly proclaim the gospel and to make him aware that he will suffer for the gospel. There's many of us who are suffering today with all sorts of things but it does not do away with the fact that the gospel is to be proclaimed. Do you understand that some of your hurt, some of your pain could be the very thing that God is going to use in other people's lives? It could be some of your pain and some of your struggle could be the greatest door that you could walk through in another person's life because they relate. And when we get caught up on it, 
We have to get ready. We're going to suffer. And that's just not persecution from non-believers. We're suffering now, many of us in our lives. Many of us in our situations. The remedy here is like it is for Paul to Timothy, who will probably live a life of struggling with fear and timidity. This is Timothy. He probably will live a life struggling under the heavy hand of fearfulness. And he says, Timothy, the only way you're going to win this battle, Timothy, I don't care what they're saying. I don't care what that elder's saying. I don't care what that deacon's saying. I don't care what that 90-year-old's saying. The, the only thing, Timothy, you're going to be able to do is you've got to continually feed that flame of God's gift in you. You've got to continually steward that thing. You've got to boil in the Spirit, Timothy. So my question to you today, to Hilltop Church, is what is preventing you from being a witness? What is preventing you from sharing your faith? Is it fear? Is it timidity? Is it brokenness? Well, know that we can identify with characters in the Word of God. We can identify with them. And there is a way out. I love what John Piper says about Paul's first eight verses in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says, Paul wants Timothy aflame. Never hot, but fiery hot. White hot. Because remember, Jesus spits lukewarm people out of his mouth. Now that may be kind of like really Daryl at Sunday morning. But this scripture is in Revelations chapter 3 verse 16, which in there is the revelation of Christ. I think we should pay attention and heed the words. Listen, today the last thing you want to be is lukewarm. The Christian experience was never meant to be lived half-heartedly or cold or lukewarm. It was to be lived aflame with God's Spirit. All laughing aside, it is that urgent. It is that urgent. God cares about your status. He cares about what you're feeding yourself. Not necessarily food, but what you're taking in through your eyes and your heart. He cares about your action. He cares about your status. And my question to you today, friend, are you living a life aflamed by God's Spirit? Are you lukewarm? My caution to you is that Christ will spit you from His mouth. And be it far from me, that I wouldn't acknowledge that truth. That just because we're here right now, that that gives us some kind of safety or reassurance. You can be here right now and be just as dead spiritually as somebody living in this world and living for the world. Guys, the days of playing church are over. 
I'm not trying to be controversial. I'm not trying to be provocative. I'm not trying to just hit a nerve. It is my concern. My genuine concern for the church is we have a lot of blinded Christians who think there's something that they're not. And don't just go immediately right to your list of sin. It's not what I'm talking about. Jesus today is not holding that that checklist over your head saying, well, you did this, that disqualifies you. You did that, that disqualifies you. No, Jesus is looking at your heart. He cares little about what you did last night, what you did last week, what you said last night, what you did last week. He cares about possessing your heart because Jesus knows if he has your heart, that checklist disappears. See, the moment we start talking about sin and lukewarmness, it's like, oh, yep, I'm there. I know what I did last night. Oh, my God, I looked at that website. He's taught. This is why he's preaching this message. I know it is. How stupid is that? It's not God. God's not holding over you this big kind of like, you know, my son screws up all the time. I mean, he's seven. I mean, there's grace, right? I mean, seven. I mean, I don't know what I'm saying. But you know what? He does things, and we constantly say, hey, you know, dude, And then, you know, maybe not even an hour later, he's doing the same thing. I'm like, Abram, we just talked about I don't continually just say, hey, we just talked about this. Get it right. Or I am not going to be your dad. <laughs> I don't do that. Neither does God. God is, does not have a checklist today. He's simply saying, where is your heart? What is your status? <laughs> Facebook. Watch me now. God has your heart. That's why when he saw Pharisees and these religious people, he said, listen, you're so concerned. You're so caught up with that outer shell, you know, like, like the way you look and the cup, it's clean on the outside. But you know what? It's a mess inside. And that's what I care about. I mean, in Christ, I care about inside. So don't immediately just go what I did, what I, you know, what I'm not doing. It's not what we're talking about. If we're not careful, we will totally, and the church is doing it, we will totally disregard this type of language because it makes people feel uncomfortable. But if we can just lock in and say, Christ, you care about my heart. (laughs) I care about my heart. So do a work in my heart. Fan into flame the gift of God inside of me so that I don't have to live as a casual Christian, but I can live aflame by the Spirit of God. I mean, who doesn't want that? I want that. You should want that. So my prescription is, guys, life is short. If you're playing games, stop. I don't mean with me. I mean if you're playing with, you know, with God. Stop. Lock in. Lock in to what God wants to do in and through your life. Get rid of Monday through Friday living one way and Sunday snapping in quick so you can go to church. Man, I see some of your Facebook pages. You're certainly not fooling me. You're not, you're, and I don't, I don't even care all that much, but you're obviously not fooling God who sees all things. 
And He's inviting you tonight, today, this morning, to come out of that passivity, to come out of that trajectory of constantly battling the same things over and over. And you know what? It's not even about what you're battling. It's just you giving your heart to Christ. And you know what? That's all I got to say. And you know what? I'm not doing an altar call. I, I was uh, at a meeting one time with Matt Lockett. He oversees J-Hop DC and Bound for Life International. And Daniel Lim was there. And Matt just dropped like a heavy convict. It was just full of conviction, a word. He just like started preaching. It just hit everybody. It was about abortion. And everybody's just weaving. You know, people are like, ah, you know, convicted just of sin and convicted of, of complacency. And, and, and um, Matt brought it to a place of where everybody's just weeping. Nobody knows what to do. And he gives it like to Daniel. Maybe I oversaw, I, mean, I overheard this story. I, didn't, I wasn't there. I didn't wait to myself. I won't be true on that. I just, but Daniel said, we're going to leave it messy. You know, there's always like this sense of trying to coddle and comfort. I'll let Jesus do that. Because I realize now, years in the ministry, that there is nothing that I can do to make God's people respond. And the only thing I will ask of you in this moment, at this time, is that you do respond, not to an altar call, but in your heart. Father, I thank you for this group of people. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity, Lord, to come here and to speak your word. Lord, as it is written, God, to not candy coat, Lord, or dumb down things, but Lord, to speak openly. Lord, in my prayers today that here in this room, people are not convicted because of my words, but because of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we look to you to do the work, the work in us. We look to you to do and move our hearts accordingly to your will. And so, God, my prayer this morning, will you move this church Will you move our hearts, Lord, if there's anyone here, God, who is struggling, God, who, Lord, who lives um, maybe a dual lifestyle, Lord, whatever it is, God, those things you see, they're ever before your eyes. God, I ask, Lord, right now that your grace would be extended towards them and that in their hearts would come alive to the call and the cause of Christ in Jesus' name. I pray. I'm going to leave it here. Is this okay, guys? I, really, I'm, I'm not trying to beat anybody up. It's not my goal. Um, but my, my, I've also have sat under preaching like in words that we just used and many times have felt condemned. And I've really was able to, at one point in my life, realize that I wasn't being condemned at all. I was actually being convicted. And so I just would ask you that you would be able to just use those honest prayers as once I did, where, I, where we, where I needed to discern the difference between condemnation and conviction. You see, it's the job of the Holy Spirit to convict us.
It's a good thing. Not so much on the condemnation side, okay? We don't want that. Honey, do you have anything to add? Okay. All right, my friends. Thank you for loving me. Um, I love you, and I'll be praying for you this week. Listen, the house of prayer will be open every day, um, both morning and night, two hours in the morning, two hours at night. And we look forward to connecting with you guys and pursuing God together. Also, seven, the merge happens this Wednesday. The following Wednesday, we're going to cancel it simply because of the intensive. It's going to be intense. (laughs) Everything's canceled because we'll be over at Bradford um, working it out, slugging it out, and having a great time. Listen, if you want to be part of that great time, it's not too late. This is going to be an awesome week. If you have the opportunity to arrange your schedule to be there, I'd encourage you to, okay? Um, Again, feel free to connect with Izzy. She'll um, inform you, or me or my wife can... um, Bring up the speed if you're interested. And remember, 200 seats. Listen up. 200 seats is all we have in Bradford for both uh, nights that are open, Monday and Friday with Lou and Doug Stringer. 200. Now, many people in the Haverhill and New Hampshire area, Bradford area, they don't get to hear. Lou doesn't go that way a lot. So there's going to be a good amount of people from this uh, area going to those events. So I'd encourage you, if you're going... Come early, get your seat, because once we hit 200, that's it. Um, we have to abide by the rules, and that's all we have room for. Okay? All right, prayer every day this week. We have the merge. Hope to see you there. And 110 intensive, baby. It's going to be a good time.